0: Hello, I'm Elena DelVal, and this is the HispanicNPR.com podcast. My guests today are Barbara C. Cruz, Jeff Hauk, and Andrew Hughes, authors of The Cuban Sandwich, A History in Layers. We will discuss The Cuban Sandwich and their book. Barbara is professor of social science education at the University of South Florida, USF. She has been a faculty member since 1991, teaching undergraduate and graduate courses, conducting research on global and multicultural issues. Jeff is vice president of marketing for the 1905 family of restaurants in Tampa. He spent 25 years in newspaper and multimedia journalism, most recently as a features editor, food writer and podcaster at the Tampa Tribune. He has written for Thrillist, FoxSports.com, Palm Beach Post, the Miami Herald, and the Anchorage Times. Andrew is curator of Florida studies at the University of South Florida Libraries. His other books include The Columbia Restaurant in 2009 and From Saloons to Steakhouses, A History of Tampa in 2020. Welcome.
1: Thank you. Thank you for having us. Thank you very much.
0: Before we get started on the Cuban sandwich, if you would share any conflict of interest disclosures that you have, does any of you have affiliations or have you received monies or in-kind contributions, benefits of any kind from third parties that you care to share?
2: No, we do not have any.
1: No, I wish. My only conflict of interest is that I'm in love with the Cuban sandwich and that's where it goes. No, no. no,
0: no. Let's start with a really simple question. And I know this is not so simple after reading the book, but let's give it a shot. How do we define the Cuban sandwich? What are we talking about for purposes of our discussion within the confines of today's conversation how do you three, as authors of the book, who have spent an amount of time researching and hopefully savoring Cuban sandwiches, how do you define a Cuban sandwich?
1: Jeff, you, you want to start? It, yeah, it. I'll, I'll, I'll get the ball rolling. You know, um, you know the not to equivocate, but it depends on who you ask. But the basics are, you know, you have a a long fluted um, loaf of Cuban bread, you know, a panda agua, and, um, you cut it in half, uh, you know, along the meridian. So you have two halves of bread on the bottom. You start with a, a mojo marinated roast pork. Uh, some people shred it, some people slice it, that sort of as your bedrock. And then above that, you put a layer of, um, of ham, um, you know, if you prefer, you can uh, caramelize the outside of the ham to add a little bit of sweetness, but sort of sort of be like a, a boneless uh, uh, ham. Um, and then on top of that, you have, in Tampa, a slice of Genoa salami with black peppercorns to give it a little bit of um, depth of flavor. Above that layer, you would have a slice of Swiss cheese. Above that, you would have a couple of uh, dill pickle chips. And then on the roof of the slice, the top slice, you would put a generous coating of yellow mustard. You put that all together. You butter the exterior of the top and bottom and put it in a press if you prefer your sandwich pressed. Not everybody requires that. Some people do not. But if you press it, you slather it up with butter. You put it in a press until you get uh, you know, a melding of all of those flavors and the cheese starts to melt. And you get a crispy, crunchy, delicious sandwich that after it's pressed, you cut on a bias or on a diagonal from one corner to uh, the other. Sort of like from the northwest to the southeast corner of the sandwich. And, you know, you eat it from the pointy end, uh, preferably. And, um, you know, you can uh, you can taste all those flavors in every bite. That's the, the goal is to have a consistent flavor experience through through biting all that the the answer before that i gave about depends on who you ask in miami there is a tradition of not using salami um you know the sandwich does not usually have a sauce or a mayonnaise on it although more and more people seem to be putting that on there to kind of give a little more moisture to the the sandwich but at its its crust at, at its core is you know, layer of about three proteins, Swiss cheese, pickles, and mustard that you press all together to have a, a very, very delicious, crispy, crunchy, sweet, salty snack.
3: And I guess for me, this is Andy, the interesting thing about it is that <clears throat> we've arrived to a very doctrinaire point in the Cuban sandwiches history, or or we certainly did late in the 20th century, that it had to be certain things in a certain order, et cetera. But the, you know, the fact is, is that it's always been pretty fast and loose. There still is no uniformity if, you know, you go across uh, the country and look at all the people who are serving it. So, you know, at one point I thought about making a flow chart for the book where, you know, you'd be able to look at the sandwich in your hand and what does the bread look like? What does the ham, the the pork look like? And then it would tell you kind of (laughs) where it came from. And it just became too complicated to even achieve. So um, I guess that's one of the, for me, one of the interesting things is that it's become this very inflexible recipe for a lot of people, but that its history is completely the opposite of that.
0: If, for example, you have all of the ingredients that you just listed a moment ago, but it's not pressed, is it still a Cuban sandwich?
1: I would argue that it is. Um, you know, it's a matter of preference. The pressing of the sandwich didn't really come into it until mid-century, uh, you know, the 1950s or so. Um, the sandwich, as it's made in Tampa, if you say make it with La Segunda Central Bakery bread, is crispy whether or not you uh, press it or not. Um, it, it doesn't matter. You're still going to get a crispy kind of experience. The, Miami style Cuban bread tends to have more of a brittle eggshell kind of crust. And pressing it with butter brings it sort of up to the crispy level of the Tampa version, um, if that's what you prefer. You know, there's there's so many different variations of it that I think that the the definition is, you know, broadening, but at the same time, as as Andy said, people have become very rigid in what they their expectations are. And, you know, we write about it in the book that there's somebody there are people who will make what everybody would qualify as a Cuban sandwich. But because they may tweak one or two ingredients or change the style of how they serve them, they don't go anywhere near it because it'll outrage people. They'll they'll call it something else instead, like a mixto or or some other version of the sandwich that that uh, gives them more flexibility.
0: That makes me think of. The deli, I guess it is, or the butcher that you featured in the book. I think he's in. Is he in Ybor City or is he in Tampa? Does that it...
1: correct? That's the one we're speaking of, Andrew Tambuzo from the Boozy Pig, who is a third-generation Tampa butcher, and he makes a mixto because he's part Italian and part Sicilian. He worked four years on his recipe, and because he might tweak something differently. Uh, in a way that someone might not consider that a true "quote unquote" Cuban, um, you know, he calls it a mixto. And this is a guy who goes to the goes to the extent of he makes his own roast pork, makes his own ham, makes his own salami, which nobody really makes as part of the process on their own. They usually, you know, purchase it. Um, you know, he does everything except. The Swiss cheese and the bread because he makes his own pickles and he makes his own mustard. So it's, you know, you see somebody going to that extent and they're still sort of abiding by what the expectations are about what is and isn't a true definition of a Cuban. And so the other
2: thing that I wanted to say, Elena, too, is that you know, for for many people, it's about the taste memory that they have, right? And so, um, You know, we we interviewed, as you saw in the book, there are several profiles. We've we've got folks who absolutely remember their abuela making a pork roast. And so then the pork that goes into the sandwich is kind of almost like a pulled pork or shredded. You know, it's a lot wetter. But then equally, there's someone else who is adamant um, that it's a deli sandwich. And so that the pork needs to be sliced cleanly, you know, in slices as if you would get it in a deli, right? But then we've also got people who have to make do with what they got. So we had this wonderful man that we interviewed um, who is in North Belfast, uh, in Belfast, North Ireland. And he's got to work with what he can get, you know, in that part of Ireland. So specifically the, the Cuban bread, for example, you know, he works with, with you know, a purveyor that, that gives that to him there. And so each of them, do what either they think is right or the best that they can do given their particular circumstances. So, um, yeah, so those are the kinds of things that we need to remember um, when we, when we talk about, you know, what's the right way to make a Cuban sandwich. Um, So anyway.
0: It's, it's an interesting point that you just made. And one that crossed my mind as I was reading the different sections of the book where you interviewed or highlighted people preparing it or who have had experiences with it whether it was chefs like we had a couple of the chefs there who talked about their experiences i think one of them shared a recipe for the lechon and and i shared this conversation with someone who was in europe And she says, okay, now you've got me going. I want to try one of these Cuban sandwiches. What do I do? There's no Cuban sandwiches. So because she's in a foodie city, I went looking around and I said, oh, is there anywhere there that this would be possible? And I came across a place called Little Havana. Don't you know? And the question in my mind is, is it, Is it a Cuban sandwich if they're making something similar to what we're discussing here, but it's not someone from Florida, and it's not even in Florida, like in the case of Ireland? Where is that line? Is it still a Cuban sandwich?
2: You know, I'm going to argue yes it is a Cuban sandwich, you know, it may not be, it, it, as it is, you can go to any of a number of places in Florida, for example, um, or in, you know, places where there's a substantial Cuban community like Elizabeth or New Jersey or New York city for that matter. And, uh, you know, you can have a lot of variation even within the United States. So to find those variations outside of the United States, I think is going to be very much It's reasonable to expect that. And actually, Jeff has been in contact with some folks in Korea that I think, you know, might be an interesting
1: um,
2: side story here to consider. Don't you think, Jeff?
1: Yeah, I think, you know, uh, it's sort of like it's, would you expect that from the Philly cheesesteak? If you have, you had a Philly cheesesteak and you're not in Philadelphia, is it a Philly cheesesteak? You know, that sort of thing. There's a certain expectation with that sandwich, say an Amorosa roll or how it's prepared or does it have cheese? I, I think the farther you get away from Florida, or the tropics, um, you know, I think that that your expectation obviously modifies a little bit. As Barb said, I, there's a, a young couple in Seoul, South Korea, who operate something called the Tampa Sandwich Bar, and their aim is to provide American comfort food, but they have four different kinds of Cuban sandwich. One is a Tampa version. One is a Miami version. They also do one with Uh, kimchi, which sounds exotic. But when you look at what the profile of the mustard and the pickles uh, provide in terms of flavor, you can kind of see where, oh, okay, well, they kind of adapted to their own location, to their customers. And, you know, really, when you read the history of the Cuban sandwich in our book, you see that that's really the origin story about the sandwiches using what ingredients are available. Yes, there might be something that would have a common denominator. But, you know, Andy's research showed all different kinds of ingredients that today almost nobody would look at and say, that's a Cuban sandwich. So part of it is, is that, you know, it's a it, it started out in a fairly flexible point of view. You know, and, it, and it's kind of silly when you think about it. Nobody was sitting there with a pen and paper saying, OK, we're going to create a sandwich and this is how you'll make it. You know, it sort of it evolves and it's continuing to evolve. There just happens to be sort of expectations based on what people fell in love with when they were either in Tampa or Miami or Key West or anywhere where it's served down in the in the tropics
0: one of the revelations in the book is that the Cuban sandwich if i understood correctly is a florida is a product of florida and I'm hoping that you'll clarify this, but I think what you say in the book is that it's a product, more specifically, of the Cubans in Tampa that moved to Tampa during the Spanish-American War or after the war. Did, am I understanding all this correctly?
3: Actually, I mean um, that was one of the um, the one of the things that I really wanted to try to drive home is that that. It comes from Cuba, as far as we know, Um, and that, you know, Tampa was certainly um, a satellite of Havana, uh, you know, back in the day um, in the, you know, 1880s, 90s, early 1900s. And so if it if it developed in Tampa at all, it developed in parallel with the one in Havana. So I think it's wrong to say that that's a Florida product or that it was invented in Florida. I think Florida always took its cues from Havana especially you know at least until um until you know the rise of castro so you know one important part of the story here was to to recontextualize things in in cuban history and to put cubans back in the center of the story because for a long time florida has sort of hijacked the story and said oh your choices are between tampa and miami as far as like a birthplace and um somehow Havana completely got left out of the equation altogether, as well as the rest of the island of Cuba.
0: So the origin is Cuba, but it evolved and has sort of thrived in Florida.
3: Yeah. I mean, wherever Cubans, uh, you know, migrated to is, is um, so you've had you know, back in the thirties, you had, uh, Orlando had Cuban sandwiches. There were certainly lots here in Tampa, you know, Miami, you know, Cuban restaurants go back there to the 30s as well. So, you know, it, it has a, a much longer history in the United States than I think we gave it credit for. Um, you know, the first time that I found one was around the turn of the century. So it's like the year 1900 in New York City. It's another city that sort of got left out of the equation because, um, you know, Tampa and Miami have made an awful lot of hay over this. So, um
0: Okay, let's let's talk a little bit about that. The main distinction between the interpretation of the Cuban sandwich in Miami and the interpretation of the Cuban sandwich in Tampa, is it cultural? Is it the history sort of a source of pride? What, what is behind that?
3: Um, I think I can answer this. It's, it's temporal, you know, it's, uh, it has to do with time, you know, and so, you know, one of the things you asked about is, you know, is it still a Cuban sandwich if it's, you know, away from Florida, away from Cuba, you know, and Cubans have moved to just about every corner of the globe at this point. Um, uh, I'm sorry, I lost my spot. Uh,
0: <laughs> you were saying that it's temporal.
3: Right, so yeah, you have different generations. So, like, so a, a Cuban arriving in 1900 is he any less a Cuban than one that arrives in 1959? I guess is the question. And so, you know, what you have is different generations of Cubans making the sandwich as they as they knew it in Cuba when they when they crossed over. So, if someone came over in 1900, they're going to make much different bread. So that's how like Tampa got its bread. Uh, it's kind of distinctive bread because it's an old, a very old version of Cuban bread. La Segunda Central Bakery, who, you know, is still making it here, um, you know, they, they started in 1915. Um, now, if you were uh, Cubans who came over in 1959 or 1960 and opened up a place, your bread would look way differently because, you know, bread continued to develop on the island of Cuba so Tampa's bread is is an outlier. It's it's an old version that's sort of been preserved with the palmetto leaf and the you know the the crusty exterior. Whereas you know people on the island of Cuba kept making the bread and kept making it different ways. It continued to evolve. They uh, they made a lot of adaptions based upon being able to make volume, <clears throat> you know, and uh, profit point, you know, being better. So they, you know, they, they streamlined a lot of the things that Tampa still does today. So you have a much different, you know, a much smoother bread, much more uniform, much softer. And so, um, I think that's important to understand as well as, you know, the, the, the fillings happen to change over time. So what you have is really, uh, Miami is more of a slimmed down affair in the sense that it doesn't have the salami on it. Tampa used to have, always have, uh. Not always, but often had turkey on it as well. That's something that's been lost to history as well. And people, you know, on the island talked about that, you know, uh, mortadella was a big ingredient and that's another thing you don't find anymore and that people will be kind of surprised to hear about. So it's definitely like a a mixed up affair. A
0: lot of a lot of folks that i've talked with over the years favor a more traditional meal versus the sandwich they kind of look at the sandwich as a, not a not a proper meal how did that come about is is that and this is just a very uh, non scientific description that I'm sharing, I didn't do a survey or a study or anything, but just an impression that there seem to be divisions where some people don't consider the the sandwich as a meal, whereas other people find it very satisfying and a meal unto itself. Where does this come from? Did you look at that when you were researching the book?
2: So if I could jump in here, I mean, one of the things, if you've ever been to Miami, In particular, with all of the ventanitas, the little windows that there are in so many different bakeries and restaurants, there, Um, you know, the sandwich is a very portable thing. Um, It usually comes wrapped. The two halves that Jeff was describing comes wrapped in in you know some some paper, so you could easily hold it, walk and eat, or stand at the at the window, take it back to your work, um, you know, all that kind of thing. And so in that case, I suppose that some people think that it's kind of like a street food and, uh, and a snack. And Andy could certainly talk a little bit more about it, its historical antecedents, right? And when, it, and when it used to be uh, something that, you know, working people really, you know, kind of relied on as sustenance. But if you've ever had a Cuban sandwich, a properly made, stacked Cuban sandwich, I beg to differ when people say that it's not <laughs> a satisfying meal in and of itself. <laughs> it can be quite filling. Um, and my favorite way to eat a Cuban sandwich, which you know, my, my compatriots here know about, is to uh-huh. have it with a cafe con leche. And as you have that cafe con leche, and of course it's always made with whole milk, right? And it's got sugar in it, and it's got the strong Cuban coffee. And then you've got this well-made Cuban sandwich to go with it. It is a belly filler. Um, you can go all day on that combination right, right there. So well
3: also I just I don't know of a, where you can even get a snack sized Cuban sandwich anymore. <laughs> so, you know, initially they were they tended to be much smaller. I mean, Cuban bread was a lot smaller. I mean, one of the things that I cited in the book, you know, around probably 1910 or so is a guy talking about that. You know, the Cuban loaf uh, is about as big around as a silver dollar. You know, it's a very small, at least the, the version that he saw and they would make sandwiches on this and it would be, it'd be small. Now, of course you can make a sandwich as long as you, you want, you know, up to a yard long if you're using Cuban bread traditionally. Um, but uh so, you know, I, I think that it was, uh, first of all, you know, if, um, if you want to serve, you know, Cubans a sit down dinner, you got to get them to sit down first. <laughs> and, you know, um, like, like Barbara talked about, it's very much a mobile affair, you know, You're taking a promenade on Sundays or going out, um, you know, on a weekend night for dancing, et cetera, you know, there'd be a lot of movement and, um, not necessarily the time or the inclination to sit down to a big, heavy meal. Um, you know, the other thing is, is that, you know, Van is very hot. You know, there's a reason why people went out at night uh rather than during the afternoon, because it was just too hot. So, you know, you have people eating sandwiches and, and snacks into the night. And, you know, just by virtue of the hour and everything else, they, they really can't be that big, you know, like the... um The Frida Cubana is a good example. It's kind of the Cuban hamburger that developed on the island. And those tended to be pretty small. They're not a big, you know, uh, a jaw-busting burger or anything. Um, You know, one of the things that we found in the research as well is um, just how it used to be a real favorite of the the well-to-do. You know, we think of the Cuban sandwiches like firmly in working-class community somehow and um you know that's a change over time but if you went back to say 1900 or 1910 or 1920 in Havana uh Cuban sandwiches were at a premium they're they're expensive they got several different kinds of meats they're all being sliced from ha- you know by hand um a lot of these you know meats and, and different ingredients are all imported so um you know uh, it was the type of thing where if you're a well-to-do couple who went out you would take your carriage out at night or your Model T, if it's in the 20s, and you go for a ride, and um, you know, get some cool air in your face. And you know, they talked about in Havana newspapers that these these packages, these parcels that women were holding, were ubiquitous. You know, in their kind of fancy gloved hands, there would be all these uh, uh, sandwiches that are wrapped up in striped paper, red and white paper. And so, every every time you saw a carriage go by at night. They'd, they'd be holding these sandwiches because then they wouldn't have to stop and get a snack, et cetera. So I really, you know, think that it served a different function than, say, sitting down and eating a big meal, you know.
0: What does it mean today in this 2023? What does it represent, the Cuban sandwich, other than the Cuban diaspora? How would you describe that?
1: Anyone yeah, else I, 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 yeah I, I you know, I think that um, the Cuban sandwich has a really unique place in the food world in that I don't know of another food stuff, maybe whiskey, maybe coffee, that has so much emotion and politics, geography, uh, ingredient story. You know, there's a lot wrapped up in it um, that's been made even more um volatile but more emotional because of it representing um you know an oppressed population um you know what it means to people to eat that sandwich in a free country versus the fact that you would be very hard-pressed to find out uh find that sandwich on the island of its origin um, you know, what it represents in terms of the life that was changed forever, um, you know, at various points of the history of uh, of Cuba in the past 125 years. Um, you know, there's it means something to an Anglo that maybe it means something different to a Cuban American um, or someone who has literally just come off a boat. Among the three hundred thousand people that have emigrated from the island just this year, um, you know it is um, it is absolutely loaded with um, symbolism. It is a meal. You know, you talked earlier about uh, why is it not considered a meal, and I I I too would argue opposite of that because, you know, we know at the Columbia restaurant here in Tampa that we only have the re- the sandwich on the menu at lunch we serve it as you know with plantain chips and you know a side of uh of pickle and everything um but it's not on the dinner menu and people ask for it anyway so we always make them for dinner if someone requests it you know that's how much of an emotional thing it is is that when you come to tampa or ybor city or florida you expect to have it whenever you want it and so you know we do our best to get to you know the answer is yes um, but it's, you know, it it is for someone coming to Tampa, it represents a visit to Tampa or a visit to Florida. for someone who's never had a Cuban sandwich before, it's an entirely different experience from a from a, a dining standpoint than pretty much any other sandwich you're gonna have. Uh, you know, and then, as, again, if you look at the history in our book, it has so much history behind it that I, I, you'd be very, very, uh, challenge to find anything similar uh, in terms of all of the the history that goes into pretty much every angle of the sandwich. So, you know, for somebody, say, you know, Barbara profiled the folks in Dublin, it's a love story. It's a love story about their native food. Um, you know, if you, if you look at the movie Chef, um, made by Jon Favreau uh, about 10 years ago, it's a story about his liberation as a chef by serving this quote-unquote humble food that he served in an elevated fashion on, um, on a food truck. And it's a story about redemption. I mean, it's one of those kind of things that can represent pretty much anything you print on it um, because it's such an approachable food. Um, you know, it's, it's something that continues to evolve Um, But it will always have that, um, you know, emotional uh, relevance to the island and what is going on on the island at any point in history, be it, you know, oppression or freedom or liberation or war or emigration. Um, You know, it's going to have a lot of things tied up to it.
3: Yeah, uh, one of the things I'd like to add too is, uh, you know, we're talking about kind of the significance of the sandwich. Um, you know, at one of the stories I came across was uh, a young lady um, who just just got off the boat, basically um, in in Miami. She was being processed in the Freedom Tower, and she brought a sandwich. It was a peanut butter and jelly sandwich, and she said it was like the food of the gods. It was so it was so good. But that she she didn't know how she would have reacted if they would have brought, would have brought her the sandwich. She didn't have to say Cuban sandwich because, well, in Cuba, they don't call it a Cuban sandwich, right? So what what would, you know, and she just said she would have lost it completely if they had brought her a Cuban sandwich. Um, you know, the other thing that, you know, we're talking about, whether it's a meal or a snack. And I think one of the, you know, its snackiness is one of its... Um, defining characteristics you know um so the cuban anthropologist um fernando ortiz he had written about ahiaco as being um an iconic dish that was like a metaphor for colonial cuba you know in that the the spanish brought the the pork or the beef um the root vegetables were associated with slaves and the chilies were associated with the native population and i think that the cuban sandwich sort of um it serves as a good metaphor or a symbol for Republican Cuba, you know, in that it's, um, you know, uh, people are much more mobile. You know, there's a lot more aspirations to be modern, to have your own dish, you know, to have your own sandwich rather than sharing a, you know, a big bubbling pot with everybody. So I think it really reflects, you know, the uh, Cuba in the 1890s going into the 20th century it's much more complicated, it's much you know based on a lot more imports and such, so I think that's important to to take into account too, is that it, you know originally it wasn't supposed to be a meal, you know it was supposed to be something you ate between meals um, or that you ate in lieu of a meal because you were out and about so
2: yeah and I, and I think too, in addition to what Jeff and Andy have just talked about, you know the you know the Cuban sandwich in the past, the Cuban sandwich in the present you know, like Cubans, like Latinos in general, you know, we're not one culture, we're not one static culture or cultures even, where it's it's a very dynamic population constantly changing and evolving and borrowing and, you know, having this cultural diffusion. Well, the sandwich embodies that as well. That's why, yes, you know, we love an original Cuban sandwich. And by original, I mean, maybe like the Miami version or the Tampa version. Okay. But you know what? We've also encountered um, some Cuban sandwich versions that have some pretty uh, unusual or unique ingredients. We've seen some that have chutney in it, for example, right? Or an aioli sauce, you know, in it. And I think that that's great too. I think that that helps to... Uh, show the dynamic uh, creativity, you know, of a Mm -hmm. people. And so in many ways, it's also the future. So it's the past, the present and the future all in one sandwich.
3: Yeah. I'm glad you mentioned that, Barbara, because, you know, the, when I mentioned the ahiaco just now and, um, you know, the idea of an ahiaco is that, um, you know, it never has to stop cooking, right? You know, the, the ahiaco as a symbol of Cuba is powerful because, it's never really finished. You know, you're always adding something new to the pot and it's sort of developing over time. Um, and I think the Cuban sandwich is is a good reflection of that too. I don't think it's, it's, you know, sat still for very long. There's been a lot of different things. And I think maybe that's part of its charm too, is that you can sort of project whatever you want to on it within, you know, certain bounds. So
1: I'll give you an example. There's a, a press release that came out this week And the the baseball team in Miami is uh, the Miami Marlins. And they announced that they were going to have something called the Cubano Gigante. And it was going to be Miami's largest Cuban. It's going to be 34 (coughs) inches long. It's going to weigh 2.5 pounds. It's going to feed between four and eight people. And they listed all the ingredients. And the last ingredient they listed was a special sauce. Lone depot park which is the name of their ballpark the sponsor Lone depot park special sauce and everybody lost their mind online this week because they're like first of all special sauce and second of all it's sponsored by a bank you know so it's like everybody is very very attuned to what their expectations of the sandwich are and they keep evolving but you can see when you hit a tone deaf note in miami what it looks like by looking at this sandwich
0: It's a, it's an interesting food item, let's call it, an interesting dish because even though it's something that you could make at home, it has ingredients that may be difficult to come by, especially if you're not in Miami or Tampa. How do you get a hold of lechon or how do you get a hold of authentic Cuban bread? The other items may be easier to procure, but those two may be difficult to come by, and not everybody has a press at home. So it seems like it's an at-home dish, and yet, p- perhaps, would you say most people who have a Cuban sandwich are eating out?
2: Yeah, I could jump in here 100%, Elena. Most people, most Cubans, certainly, who have a Cuban sandwich eat it out, um, as my colleagues will will tell you the Cuban sandwich, as you've just noted, it's really several different recipes, all in one big recipe. So you either have to make everything from scratch yourself or you have to be able to procure each of the items. And then you have to be able to kind of recreate it at home. But I would argue that in addition to the fact that that it could be a complicated recipe, well, it is actually, if you do it right anyway, um, that it is a complicated recipe. That it is time-consuming. That it does have a lot of different ingredients. That also having a Cuban sandwich is is kind of a social event in many ways. Whether it was in old Cuba or you know the streets you know of Tampa in an open carriage or whatever, to even today, stopping by uh, a ventanita and you know catching up with friends, um, sharing you know, un cortadito of coffee as well. Um, You know, there's a a communal element that goes with this sandwich that is not replicated at home, not easily replicated at home. So, you know, and I'm Cuban. I was born in Cuba and I was raised in the United States. And I've talked to my siblings about this. We can remember maybe once or twice having a Cuban sandwich at home. Maybe. And that's only because we had some you know, leftover deli meat, we had an extra, you know, hunk of Cuban bread that was leftover from breakfast. And so my mom fashioned using two cast iron skillets, you know, kind of like a a press that she could use at home. But generally speaking, we went out to get Cuban sandwiches. And every once in a while, of course, you also could buy it out. And then you brought it home, right? You brought it home, but you didn't make them, you know, in your house
0: tell us about the relatives of the Cuban sandwich. And by that, I mean the croqueta preparada, the medianoche. Are they, where do they fall in relation to this conversation we're having the
3: research that you did for the book? Hmm, That's a good question. I mean, the, the medianoche, the more time I spent doing research on this stuff, the more I thought the medianoche existed largely because Cuban bread tends to go stale by the end of the day. So, by midnight, you know, you're, um, you're you may not want to use Cuban bread um, that was made that morning. So, Medianoche, you know, uh, uses a, a kind of an egg bread It's a little sweeter, it's much softer, it tends to be a smaller sandwich than the Cuban sandwich often because it's being, it's being eaten after people leave the theater or leave the dance hall or whatever. So, people don't want to have a really big, big bite. Um, you know, the, the croquetta preparata is, it's just a Cuban sandwich with croquettes mashed into it. Um, absolutely delicious. What could go wrong? Right. Um, so yeah, then there's a lot of others, you know, so, you, you know, you have, um, like the Latin American cafeteria when it first opened, you know, they claimed to have 35 different kinds of Cuban sandwiches. I mean, only one was actually called the Cuban sandwich, but there are lots and lots of other Uh, variations one of them being the Miami sandwich so not the Cuban sandwich the Miami which is sort of a club sandwich uh, tends to be turkey and bacon on Cuban bread so that's another example of like a Cuban sandwich but it's not the Cuban sandwich if that makes any sense
0: what about the frita you mentioned the frita briefly in the book is it part of that constellation that we're talking about where does it fall
3: yeah, I mean, I think it's all part of the family of of, um, of street foods. I don't know, you know, um, you know how 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 closely it is aligned with the Cuban sandwich. I mean, they obviously uh, sprang out of the same times and places, um, but you know, but they, they both came out of the the same need: is people on the move wanting to eat while they're on the move. Um, so I think that's probably you know where it comes from. And I think there, there is some emulation at work. I mean, you know, sandwiches in the 1890s around the turn of the century are having like a global moment. I mean, even the French who don't like any kind of foreign words in their culture embraced sandwiches. Um, so uh, so I think that the, the, there's that going on and Cubans want to sort of be part of that, you know, be part of this, uh, the, this new thing. Um, and then, uh, so I think it's the same thing like with the, the, the Frida cubana, you know, you've got um it's kind of like a hamburger and fries on one bun. I, you know, I wouldn't say that it's an emulation necessarily of the hamburger. I it definitely um you know came about on its own. And the hamburger wasn't huge when the, the Frida came along, but but I think it all comes out of the same desire to basically keep the night going without having to stop.
1: <laughs> well it's interesting too, Andy, that you know, the frita is very, very popular in Miami, and it is not nearly as widespread in Tampa. Right. And, you know, there are sort of, as, as uh, you were mentioning, there are sort of tangential food items uh, like the devil crab croquette in Tampa that did not travel to Miami because the blue crab will not be caused. But one reason is because the blue crab was so prevalent in Tampa Bay. And it came along in a point of history where people were eating street food. And, um, you know, so there's things that made the jump and things that didn't. And, you know, because of the Internet and television, now you get to see more different varieties of food that make people curious. But, you know, there's something impressive about the fact that despite all that, the Cuban sandwich is very much uh, a, a... an item that continues to move around the world. Whereas some of these others, for whatever reason, I can guarantee you that it's, it's less expensive to make a frita than it is to make a Cuban sandwich. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, but for some reason the Cuban sandwich is something that, that, that uh, travels uh, more than other, say other items.
0: What inspired the three of you to collaborate to write this book. This is, seems to me from the outside, a a labor of love in a lot of ways.
3: Yeah, we were all, we were all, um, obsessed separately with the sandwich. Um, (laughs) and, um, and then, you know, we all got to know each other. And so, you know, for me, I, I knew I wanted to explore the history and, um, I couldn't think of two better people to do it with than than Jeff and, and Barb. So, um, so it was just, yeah, a real blessing to get everyone together to be able to do it. Um, yeah, we all had, we were all kind of hooked already, and asking lots of questions. And and I sort of got um, became the default guy over the years to t- to call if people had questions about Cuban sandwiches and its history. And so eventually, it just kind of stung me into action of like, you know, we, I've got to produce some some better answers instead of giving people, you know, the same shtick every every time. So um so yeah when that happened and i was finally ready to to go i called i called uh, them too and uh, I, they could probably tell you a little more about their background
2: yeah so so after andy you know got the research kick-started um and i and then i joined the effort one of my jobs was also as a native spanish speaker was to kind of go through some of the archival material. So we looked at a lot of newspaper articles, magazines, um, books, and other kinds of periodicals from the 1800s and early 1900s that were written in Spanish. Um, And they were really interesting materials that, that, you know, Spanish is certainly one component, but also uh, some of the Spanish used and some of the storytelling was also of a distinct Cuban nature. And so that's where I was able to, to pull from my background, my roots, and be able to, to kind of be a translator, if you will. Um, and that was a lot of fun. And also uh, conducting several of the interviews of the profiles. One of the things that I found really interesting is that all of the people that I interviewed, that we interviewed for the book, You know, we're English speakers, but in my particular case, I really targeted some individuals who were bilingual. And lots of times I would ask them at the beginning of the interview, would you like to conduct this interview in English or would you like to do it in Espanol? And they would say, oh, no, we can start in English, no problem. Well, we started in English, but invariably we finished in Spanish. And especially when these individuals started to pull up some of their deep childhood memories. Uh, or they remembered family members, or they talked really evocatively about the first time that they remember having a Cuban sandwich, they would switch to their native tongue to be able to fully express the emotion that undergirded you know, their memory. And so I thought that that was really powerful. And then Jeff joined us. Go ahead, Jeff.
1: No, I just, you know, I, I came at it first from a... Uh, consumer because i i love to eat cuban sandwiches but i'm endlessly fascinated about the stories behind them and the people who make them uh in in the modern world um and why they're so popular um you know you if you if you scratch the crust on a cuban sandwich you will inevitably find an interesting story uh, whether it's about the people who are making them where they're being made who their customers are you know the choices that they made there's there's about a dozen different choices in every sandwich at every restaurant and you know we uh, we really had a great time sort of finding those people telling their stories and they're very intimate stories. There's something about the sandwich that is very personal to people that um, that they they keep very vivid and very uh, memories and very deep emotions attached to it and that always makes for for writers that always makes. Uh, for great storytelling and, you know, you could write about the ingredients and we have, but really the, the, the reasons that uh, the sandwich gets to the plate, how it was made um, you know, it's, it's always a compelling story. Um, There are very few times where, you know, we've come across something that doesn't have a real depth of all of those elements.
0: What suggestions would you share with our listeners who have perhaps never tried a Cuban sandwich because we have a national audience, Sure. who perhaps don't live in Florida, haven't been to Florida, or maybe have been and want to reconnect. What suggestions would you share with them on how to find a good Cuban sandwich?
1: Mm. I think the farther away you get from Florida, the harder it is to find quote unquote good. And I think you have to qualify what good means. Um, you know, I, I know I've been places, I was in Charleston about five months ago and I found a place called cafecito and it was a retired nurse and her husband and she was from Miami and missed it. So she wanted to make a place where she could have the food that she grew up on. And, um, it was, it was something like, I don't know, it wasn't really a a super expensive, sandwich but she went to the trouble of importing bread and getting the right ingredients and really loving on that whole presentation as being a tent pole for the rest of her her restaurant it was a very casual restaurant um, I think you'll find Cuban sandwiches if you look hard enough you'll find them pretty much everywhere how much you like them I can't put any guarantee on it but they're all going for the same thing they're all striving to hit that flavor profile of sweet and salty and crunchy and a little bit fatty and tangy uh i think once you get those points you'll you can do that you can do that in your home by assembling some of the similar ingredients Um, will it be the same thing as eating a cuban sandwich you know in august in uh in ybor city tampa it will not you're going to be disappointed if that's your expectation but Um, you know, my wife likes to make Cuban sandwich sliders for parties and football games. And would that be considered traditional? Absolutely not. Is it delicious? You bet. I would eat it all day long. Just a little bit of King's Hawaiian bread, you know, Um, that it's the kind of thing where it can be your own personal meal, or you can be a shareable kind of thing It has so much versatility to it that first of all, you know, Google is your friend. Google Cuban sandwiches near me. I'm not sure how how close it is if you're in butte montana but you know there might be something there but um you know it's not super hard to kind of replicate that flavor profile in some sort of similar way
3: yeah i think it's a lot easier than it used to be i mean around you know the late 90s early 2000s i was sort of giving up (laughs) on finding good cuban sandwiches going out there just weren't that many places where i like look forward to going to um and now i think it's um not only is it easier to find a cuban sandwich especially after the movie chef you know which uh jeff pointed out is uh almost 10 years old now um you know uh i think you can find them a lot more especially if you're you know california new york you know, et cetera, you know, your bigger cities uh, where there might be more Cubans. But I'm I'm constantly surprised, really pleasantly surprised. You know, I have friends up in Dunellen, Florida here, just a couple hours north of Tampa, you know, and it's kind of just a r- really small town. And they said, you've got to try the Cuban sandwich here. And lo and behold, it was really good. So um, anymore, it's I think um, you've got a much better chance than you did, say, 25 years ago. So and if you can find a Cuban bakery then yeah that's a big plus.
0: Do you care do you dare to share your let's say top 3 purveyors of Cuban sandwich in whatever number of cities you like so let's say Miami, Orlando, of course Tampa Anybody
2: well, I, would, I, would start, I would start by saying that in the book, the folks that we profile are are real artisans of the craft. They take their job very seriously. They take the Cuban sandwich very seriously. They, they approach it with love and care. And I think that if you are near any of those uh, restaurants and cafes that we profile in the book, that's a great place
3: to start. Yeah, I agree. Those are my votes. <laughs>
0: What about this idea of the kit? Somebody, I forget who I came across, sells a, a Cuban sandwich kit. So they will actually mail you the ingredients for you right. to make the sandwich yourself. Have mm-hmm. you tried that?
3: Yeah, I know that I'm um, like, um, Sandwich Day Miami does that with Gold Belly. Um, and, you know, after I interviewed them for the book they sent me one just to ask me how it was and uh you know if you've got your own sandwich press then that's even better um but yeah i i I think that's that was fun you know and they sent uh the bread and everything else so anyone who's doing that um i would uh yeah i'd give it a try
0: well, because, for example, if, if you don't have access to the Cuban bread and you don't have access to the lechon, getting right. the, I think they call it Latin style deli pork at a grocery store that is well known, it doesn't have the same flavor right. or profile. And without the Cuban bread and without the lechon, it doesn't taste the, the same, but if you're getting a kit from someone who is actually, has all of the ingredients, then maybe you get closer to that if you can manage the pressing and do follow the instructions right. correctly, right?
1: Well, you know, Agreed. the other thing too, uh, and Andy mentioned Gold Belly, you know, the, the Cuban bread just does not travel. So they substitute it with a different bread, but you're still getting bread. I mean, it's, it's not going to be identical, but you know, it's like I said, the difference in the expectation. The thing we we mention in the book is that um, America's Test Kitchen and Cook's Country on PBS did a uh, sort of a, a small mini series on the life of a test cook trying to make a home version of a Cuban sandwich accessible, and they've done multiple videos on it. Uh, bless their hearts, you know about the Cuban sandwich, how to. How to make a press between two pots, and if you don't have a press, and you know how to approximate making the bread and things like that. They were just recently on an episode uh, that aired about two weeks ago, where they came to Tampa <clears throat> and explored the the flavors and the culture here. <coughs> excuse me, and then you know sort of replicated that recipe. So you know I I think that's a great place to start if you if you look up on YouTube um, or Google it for Cooks Country. Um, they did a lot of the legwork, but in our book, we interviewed the test cook um, who, who worked her way through that process, and even she was surprised at how, how difficult it was, but then she kind of cracked the code for it, um, but there was a lot of trial and error, and even in the web series, if you see it on YouTube, you'll see somebody in the meeting and say, can't you just use French bread? And the editors are like, "No, you have to use Cuban bread. It's a different experience with French bread." So it, you know there there are ways to go about it. Um, it. You know it's it's as long as you get close to it, you know you can still enjoy a great sandwich.
0: What's next? I'm gonna have a sandwich.
1: <laughs> <laughs> you guys may be hungry.
0: No kidding. Do you guys have plans for, uh, in addition to enjoying Cuban sandwiches, another book collaboration, more research of another type?
3: We, we've been thinking about it, but nothing, uh, um, nothing firm yet.
2: We, we can tell you this, Elena, that ever since the publication of this book and some of the interviews that we've done, we can't tell you how many people have come up to us to tell us about their first Cuban sandwich experience, or their most memorable Cuban sandwich experience, or literally and truly, um, at a recent, after a recent talk that we gave, a book talk, um, a young woman came up with tears in her eyes with a memory of how she and her father would go every Sunday to a particular restaurant to get a Cuban sandwich. So we have, we've been collecting a lot of these memories from people. I think it would be very cool if we, we collected oral histories um, Connected to the sandwich, I think there's a lot, a lot to tell there.
0: It's a very emotional thing, is what I'm hearing you say, and that um, actually makes me think of another book that I profiled recently on a completely different topic—not food, but a memory book. And they talk about the way that you build memories and the way that you store memories, and food in some cases plays a major role. So that makes sense, mm. right?
2: Oh, yeah, yeah,
1: absolutely makes sense. Right. I mean, Um, If you think about it, you're you're talking about something that you bring into your body. And you should never take that lightly. Anything you ingest is going to be a very personal experience. And then, you know, how many times do you recall food memories being attached to, say, family gatherings or a vacation or a traumatic event? What's the thing that we do after funerals? We eat. We comfort each other with food. What do we do when we celebrate? We eat, you know, and it's, the Cuban sandwich is all part of that. It is, it is a part of those memories and people use it to feel closer to one another.
0: Barbara, Jeff and Andrew, thank you for joining us.
1: Thank you. Thank you for having us. It's been our pleasure.
0: And to our audience, you have been listening to Barbara C. Cruz, Jeff Hauk and Andrew Hughes, authors of The Cuban Sandwich, A History in Layers, who discussed The Cuban Sandwich and their book. To propose a guest for the show, you can email me directly at editor at com. That's editor at com.